Hello and welcome to the Book of Leaves podcast. My name is Cara and I am your host. Episode 32 of Book of Leaves, an Irish podcast where every episode I interview someone who's doing something good for the planet in some way and we take a leaf from their book to add to our own way of living, which is where the name comes from, Book of Leaves. In this episode, I'm going to be chatting to an activist and scientist and marine researcher called Ruth Leaney. But before I introduce you to her properly, I want to update you guys about Climate Case Ireland, which if you haven't heard already, I interviewed the these guys in episode 28, a group of Irish citizens mostly who are taking our government to court over inaction against climate ca- climate change, climate change, but specifically this plan that they set out to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But basically, it's just a document with lots of wishy-washy language and no actual definite plan. And they took this to the Supreme Court, challenged the government, the government defending themselves, saying, "No, oh, what we're doing is 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 good enough, and we've got." plans set out here and basically they won the case which is monumental. I think this is maybe only the third or fourth time uh, Supreme Court has ever ever ruled in favour of citizens in regards to climate change case against the government so it's it's really 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 great and I just wanted to let you guys know if you haven't heard that already so thank you again to Climate Case Ireland I'm going to update the end of episode 28 as well with this information in the next few days as well so there's a little bit of hobby news for you I guess Now to introduce you to this week's guest, we have Ruth Leaney. Ruth got in touch with me on my Facebook page and asked if I would be interested in doing a podcast episode around the climate change impact on coastal communities in Africa. And I said, absolutely. Ruth has been in Mozambique for the last couple of years, working in conservation, specifically with sawfishes, but also general marine biodiversity and working to involve the local communities in fighting climate change, educating them around climate change and minding their fish stocks as well because overfishing is a huge problem. So that's where Ruth has been working. She studied environmental biology in UCD and has a PhD in zoology as well. So she is a fellow animal enthusiast like myself. And even though this is an Irish podcast, I think it's really important to hear the stories from people who have seen the impacts of climate change one-on-one you know we in Ireland we might have stormophilia we'll have a hot May and some really heavy rain but there's countries out there that are literally they can see the sea level rising or they've had their home literally washed away and I think it's important that we hear these people's stories so Ruth has a lot of these stories to tell and actually listening to her and editing the episode back it reminded me of Mary Robinson's book Climate Justice which is a absolute must read if you haven't read it already and their podcast Mothers of Invention Mary Robinson and Maeve Higgins they do an amazing podcast on climate justice where they're talking to people on the front line basically about what they've seen so I'd absolutely recommend that and Climate Queen's podcast as well another Irish podcast that this summer are interviewing people who've seen the impact of climate change up front and it's just it's really important to hear their stories because we can forget in Ireland because it's kind of cushy up here and we have the privilege of so far only experiencing mild climate change effects compared to other parts of the world so 
I'm looking forward to you guys hearing what Ruth has to say, what Ruth has seen. I won't tell you too much more. I'll let her tell you herself. But do stick around afterwards for some quick show notes. And as always, if you can support the podcast on Patreon, please do. You can sign up for one or two or three euro a month. Or if you'd like to buy a once off coffee contribution, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash book of leaves. And you can donate there to the podcast fees. And that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. And as always, please share, share this episode with a friend and stick around after. I will catch you guys for the show notes and check out bookoflewspodcast.com for more detailed links to all the resources mentioned. See you in a bit. Okay, Ruth, thank you so much. You are very welcome to the Book of Leaves podcast. I've been trying to get you for ages and it's finally synced up. You're now here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I'm glad we finally got to connect. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be covering a few a variety of topics, I think, in this episode. But to start off, like I like to do with all my guests, can you introduce yourself a little bit about maybe where you're from or where you grew up and what sparked your moment of kind of being more eco-aware and eco-conscious? Sure. Uh, my name is Ruth Leaney. Um, I'm from Dublin, sort of. I kind of, I grew up in South Wales for part of my childhood, but then spent uh, most of my teenage years in Dublin and went to UCD where I studied environmental biology. I then went away for a few years and travelled, got into scuba diving in Australia, um, which I think was what really sparked my obsession with the ocean. And then came back to Dublin and did a PhD in marine biology. I guess I've always really been interested in the environment and always a big animal lover since I was very young. And I also watched the Jacques Cousteau documentaries as a kid. They were on TV um, and was always kind of obsessed with being able to be underwater and learn how to scuba dive. That's amazing. And in Australia, were, what prompted you to move there? Was it just traveling originally or? No, I just think after four years of college, I really wanted to go and see some of the world. And Australia seemed like a pretty intriguing place to go. And I had already decided that I definitely wanted to scuba dive. And I think at the time, um, you know, before scuba diving became the much more um, worldwide sport that it is nowadays, um, Australia was sort of considered one of the, the good places to go and learn. And the Great Barrier Reef was, of course, one of the, the great things to do before you die um, sort of thing. And I guess it's sad to talk about that now in a way because the Great Barrier Reef has experienced so much devastation over the last, well, decade, I suppose. Um, and the, the coral bleaching that's happened there. Um, but I was really fortunate to see it when it was still in a, I guess, a pretty good state. Although I think even at that stage, there were parts of it that were more degraded than others. Um, and the areas that tourists were really regularly visiting were considered to be more degraded. But I think I was lucky to see it in a, in a relatively good state. And I probably never want to go back there again. Yeah, you don't want to see what it's become, probably. Yeah, that's yeah. mad to think that you've seen it in person. The Great Barrier Reef has been on my bucket list that I wrote in my diary when I was like eight or nine. Like it was literally yeah. top number one. Haven't made it yet, but 
it's a sad case of a first, but hopefully research and, and education is moving in the right direction to preserve them, fingers crossed. Yeah. Have you ever, I heard you said skydived, have you ever scuba dived <laughs> off the coast of Ireland? What's it like comparatively, Ireland and Australia, worlds apart, I'd say? You know, I'm ashamed to admit I haven't, actually. Um, I'm not very good with cold water, but I lived in Cornwall um, in the UK for a few years. And um, I got into scuba diving while I was there just because I, you know, I realized that I probably wasn't going to be in the tropics for a while. And I think that Cornish waters are quite similar to to Irish waters in many respects. And yeah, it it has its own charm. Um, I'm definitely a a warm water baby rather than a cold. (laughs) I'm not, not a big fan of cold water. But I think the starkest contrast between the two areas for me is that um, you just don't see the same um, abundance of life, the same number of of fish or other animals under the water in our area as you do on a coral reef. And that's partly, I suppose, just biology. We know that coral reefs are some of the most biodiverse areas in the world. But I think it also speaks to the fact that the waters of the Northern Hemisphere and, and the, the ocean around Ireland and England has been overfished for centuries, you know, and I, um, I mean, I'm, I've recently been reading Callum Roberts' book um, called The Unnatural History of the Sea, which is an amazing book that really traces the impacts that humanity has had on the oceans over centuries and centuries. And as you read all of these kind of historical reports and the the information that he's pulled together from all these diverse sources, you realize that the oceans that we know around Ireland now are absolutely nothing like what they would have been two or three centuries ago, you know, just in terms of the quantity of fish and the types of habitats that you encounter around the coast. A lot of that has been devastated through trawl fisheries, for example, which we know are are really um, damaging the marine habitats. So it's sad, but there are still places that are beautiful to to dive and to snorkel in. And I've done some snorkeling on the west coast of Ireland, which is fantastic. And there's still some great kelp forests out there. So, you know, there are there are pockets of life, but I think our oceans around here are really tell the story of the exploitation that they've experienced over a long time period. I think we should probably move on to a bit more about that exploitation because it's because something is in the sea, it's underwater. We don't really see it as much as we would like a forest being felled. You know, Mm. we can see bushfires on the news when there's something going on underneath the water. It just, you don't, see it as much and we're people are very we're very used to kind of caring more about things that we can see and relate to and all that especially if it's if it's a quick change whereas a slow change over a couple of hundred years we're just not as connected with so I guess talking more about this exploitation people think that we've we're a small island we've got small uh, fishermen businesses but as far as I know our government has given rights to companies to super trawl with some of the largest trawlers so can you tell us a bit like about how this overfishing works and why it's so detrimental yeah so I can't um I I, I agree with you but my my knowledge on fisheries around Ireland is is not good I must admit because the vast majority of my research and conservation work um has been focused in the tropics 
but certainly, as you said, there are Irish super trawlers. Um, I know at least up until a few years ago, and maybe it's still the same now, the biggest fishing vessel in the world was an Irish vessel. So certainly Ireland doesn't seem to be afraid of, of creating these vessels that have the capacity to catch vast quantities of fish. Um, and I don't think that anyone who knows much about who knows anything about fishery science considers that to be a, a truly sustainable approach to fisheries. Now where those vessels are working, I'm not sure. Um, but I do know that there are European vessels and, and that includes Irish vessels that fish, for example, off the coast of West Africa regularly. And they would be doing that legally. There are agreements between the EU and various um, African nations that allow those vessels to fish in those waters. But just because that's legal doesn't necessarily mean that it's sustainable. That's very true. There's a lot of legal practices that aren't sustainable or, or ethical. So you mentioned there that most of your work is, is centered around the tropics. As far as I'm aware, you work in Mozambique a lot, isn't it? So what's going on there? I imagine they're probably struggling with climate change and then with this overfishing that you're talking about. So what's going on in the local community? How are they being affected by this? Yeah, so I've been working in Mozambique for the last year um, in a, national, a marine national park. And prior to that, I also worked there for a few years on and off between 2014 and 2016. Um, I spent a lot of time working um, around the coast of Madagascar as well, and also on the, the west coast of Africa. Um, and always basically in coastal environments um, and, and very often with communities who are small scale fishers and and just to maybe explain a little bit the difference there i'm sure it's obvious to most people but you've, you've got industrial fishers which are huge vessels like the ones we just talked about usually coming from western nations um, or more developed nations that can catch vast quantities of fish and then you have small scale fishers sometimes called artisanal fishers who usually work from either non-mechanized boats, so boats that are powered by sail or that they row, or that are maybe um, boats with very small motors. And often these are wooden vessels, especially in Africa. In some other places, they can sometimes be fiberglass, but often they're more traditional and quite simple boats. Um, and so obviously their capacity for catching volumes of fish is, is much lower. A lot of those people would be catching for subsistence. So they'd be catching fish in order to feed themselves. But of course, people, if they if they catch more, they want to sell it. They want to be able to make some money if they can. But the scale of their catches is by, by nature of the equipment that they have to hand much smaller. And so I have been um, talking to these communities as part of my work for about eight years now um, in various different places. And that started out with me interviewing fishermen because I wanted to find out about dolphins. So I used to do a lot of research on dolphins and I wanted to know if people were catching them. And I also knew that fishermen would be a great source of information because they're out there on the water every day. They see the wildlife that's out there. They see changes over time. And I knew that they'd be a great source of information. So I initially started interviewing them to find out, as I said, about things like bycatch of dolphins. But more and more as I got to, to speak to these communities, I, I was hearing the same information over and over again, which was, um, yes, they'd seen changes. They'd 
seen declines in some of the species that I was asking about, but that was part of much bigger declines that they were seeing. And I don't think I've ever really interviewed a fisherman who said that things are still the same, an, an older fisherman, for example, that has said that things are still the same as when he or she started fishing 20 or 30 years ago. The overwhelming narrative is one of decline. And the overwhelming narrative is one of people struggling much more to catch enough just to survive these days. And so that's become something that is sort of at the heart of what I do, because it speaks to the fact that fish stocks, fish populations all around the world, or certainly around the continent of Africa, are really nose diving. And that affects the food security of people all along the coast of the African continent. And you can't expect people to engage in conservation and to help you on your mission to protect an endangered species if they're hungry and if they're incredibly poor. They've got other priorities, obviously. So I think that this is really at the heart of a lot of issues, not just fisheries, but, but also of, um, of conservation more broadly, biodiversity conservation, and um, very much linked to the climate crisis is the fact that um, unless we address this huge disparity in wealth, and unless we address the fact that communities throughout low-income countries are struggling just to get enough food to survive, we'll never really be able to, to tackle bigger issues alongside each other, you know? So that's sort of on the, on the fishery side of things, um, about the climate, where I've been working for the last year, it's some small communities on a group of islands off the coast of Mozambique, um, and they live within a national park. So it's a really beautiful area. It's visited by a lot of tourists, usually not right now. And these islands are super low lying, very small little parcels of land. And uh, as I was engaging with, with the communities who are very much reliant on only two sources of income, one is fisheries and the other is, is tourism. So as I started talking to them and, and doing some interviews with them, I started asking people whether they knew, whether they'd heard the term climate change or climate crisis. And a few people had heard the term, but they didn't really know what it meant. Um, and a lot of people hadn't even heard the term and I think that applies across the the three islands where I was working but it also I think applies applies much more broadly in in coastal communities in Mozambique and similar countries on the African continent where a lot of coastal communities don't have access to good education and they're certainly not hearing about things like the climate crisis so then we started asking well have you noticed any changes in your on the islands in your in your living environments over the course of your life and especially older people as you would expect um, had noticed a lot of changes in the shape of the island they said that the tide the high tide mark used to be much further away now it's coming really close to my house one one of the fishermen that i spoke to said do you do you see where that guy is fishing there in his boat and he pointed to sort of about two or three hundred meters away where there was a, a little wooden dow with a fisherman in it and he said my house used to be there so this is what is happening on these islands is that that's probably partly erosion you know so you it, it's hard for us to know because there's no baseline data going back 20 or 30 years so it's hard for us to know how much the islands have changed shape and because they're sand islands there they are subject to a lot of natural erosion anyway but we also know that there are more extreme weather events happening in this part of the world as in many other parts of the world 
Um, there was a that, that terrible cyclone, um, Cyclone Idai, that massively affected the coast of Mozambique just to the north of where I've been working. And all of these events, which, which we know are linked to the climate crisis, are having a huge impact on people living in coastal communities, and especially people like, like the communities on these islands that are hugely vulnerable to sea level rise. And if you look at the predictions for sea level rise over the next 30 to 50 years, two of the five islands in the archipelago where I work will be underwater within 50 years in the worst case scenario. And in, the, in a better case scenario where we do start to address carbon emissions, they're still going to lose a significant amount of the space on those islands. So for me, this is kind of a huge issue, you know, that you've got very vulnerable communities who know nothing about what the climate crisis is and have, have contributed basically nothing to it because they're people who live extremely simple lives and, and certainly don't fly around the world or have huge carbon footprints. And yet they are going to be the first people to, well, they are already feeling the effects of the climate crisis through sea level rise and extreme weather events. So to me, that's something that I think really needs a lot more focus. Um, and it's something that I'm hoping to be able to work on a bit in the future. Um, it links to the fisheries, um, to, to the stuff we were talking about with regards to fisheries as well, because of course, um, climate breakdown is having impacts on, on uh, marine biodiversity, um, probably in more ways than we really understand. And we know that it's going to have impacts and probably is already having impacts on the, the distribution of fish species, for example. So people on these islands who have, who have a, a kind of a pattern ingrained in their minds about when certain fish species turn up and where they can catch them and how many months of the year they can catch them for, they're already seeing all of that change. And this is how the climate crisis interacts with overfishing. So it's hard to point a finger to one or the other and say, well, you know, one of these things is the cause. It's likely to be an interaction of these factors and, and many other things as well. But certainly, um, you know, the, the, there was a, um, an ocean warming warning for the Western Indian Ocean, which includes the waters off Mozambique, this year during the, the warmest period of the year, which is sort of from November, December through to April. And the water in that region of East Africa was, was extremely hot this year, far hotter than it usually is which, as we know, causes the bleaching of corals, and that can have knock-on effects on fish populations. So all of this is likely to be impacting people that live on the islands as well, it, because they're dependent on those fish populations for their food and for, for income. So it's such a complex picture that I think people don't always see all of those interactions and all of those links. And, and we, as scientists, we don't fully understand them either, which probably doesn't help our cause in trying to explain them but that certainly doesn't mean that we shouldn't try yeah like it's such an intricate system how a blue whale in the middle of the ocean that you'll never see has it we're like we're all linked we're all linked in this in this nature web and i mean i'm pretty sure like if the fish go we go Completely, yeah. and to think then on top of that the humanity side of it the communities as well that are, are suffering is really heartbreaking 
do you know if there's any resources or NGOs available or working on this kind of stuff to educate communities or what kind of power the governments might hold in, in teaching the communities? But I know this is absolutely not their priority because they're on, on like they're under developed in in a lot of ways yeah I mean from a government point of view I guess governments often have very different priorities as you said from what the conservation community or from what the communities in these countries themselves would consider to be priorities yeah in in terms of education um, it's something that I've been looking into as to whether there are any NGOs that really are addressing this I know there are some NGOs that I've come across on the internet that have resources or that state that they are doing education around climate breakdown. Uh, but I haven't yet found what I'm looking for and which I may end up just making myself, which is some sort of resource in a way that takes the local context of coastal communities in Africa into consideration. You know, so you, you have to look at communicating in a vastly different way from the way that you would educate communities in, in, in Ireland or in the US about climate crisis. Looking for those resources that take that local context into account and have the right language, which is definitely not English most of the time, and often even not the colonial language, which is Portuguese in Mozambique. I think if, if we want to truly meet this need, we have to think about developing resources that are really accessible to people that have low levels of education, often don't speak a, a European language, and why should they? They're not from Europe and, and often don't have any sort of scientific, any basic scientific understanding either, which means that you have to um, really integrate local culture and look at local life and start to think about what sort of metaphors you can use for what's happening in the climate crisis um, and how you can relate that to, to things that people understand and that people see in their everyday lives. Um, and I don't see that happening. And I really hope it is. And certainly if anyone's listening to this and they know of any any places or any organizations uh, where this is happening, I would really love to hear about it. But of course, the, the thing is as well that Africa is, is a continent of multiple nations and multiple cultures. There is no one approach that will work for everywhere. There's no, you know, everything is going to have to be different for different countries and even regions within different countries. We have a long way to go on this okay so yeah like you said if anyone's listening and could help maybe ruth with this or know resources yeah definitely get in touch and you certainly sound like you know what's needed so let me know if you find anything or you do set up anything and i'll absolutely support you and do what i can myself and hope i know any listeners would do the same and what you said there as well about you know there's so many different cultures in africa so many different religions and and traditions we kind of forget about that like the way we talk about africa if someone says i'm going to europe like in your head you picture so many different countries so many different cultures and then it's like have you ever been to africa before it's like it's it's the largest continent like it's- i mean i think in a way where you know a lot of people aren't really um it it's not it's not a people's fault in a way because yeah. the media and you know Africa gets very the continent of Africa gets very little coverage and certainly as a kid I know I didn't really learn much 
about the continent except for what I read myself because I was desperate to know about wildlife and about lions. And, but even then, you know, I didn't have a good understanding of the fact that, sure, you get lions and giraffes in some areas, but in others, you, you'd ha you wouldn't have a hope in hell of encountering a lion or a giraffe. The diversity, because it is, as you said, it's this huge continent with this incredible diversity of ecosystems and you've got amazing marine environments and you've got incredible river systems and all of these species apart from the, the big sexy species that everyone knows about that are unique um, to the continent. So yeah, you know, we don't we don't learn enough about that, I think. And we don't learn um I think Africa just gets the bad press, you know, it, it appears in our news feeds when there's a cyclone or a famine, but you don't hear about the really positive conservation efforts going on there. You don't hear about the incredible cultures and festivals that go on there. It's, yeah, it's a world unto its own, really. What is, you mentioned this to me, I think in an email before uh, this episode as well. What is Blue Justice? Ah, Blue Justice, yeah. So Blue Justice is a relatively new term out there that um, brings together a lot of different ideas about how we look at conservation in the marine sphere, how we look at fisheries, but most importantly, I think integrating human coastal communities into the way that we look at marine and coastal ecosystems, the way we plan for those areas and for those um, populations of species and management of those areas. So it's about taking the rights of coastal communities into consideration. And I think the reason that this has become such an up and coming issue is because people are starting to recognize that the rights of small-scale fishers and the rights of people who live in island communities, as we've discussed, and in coastal communities in low-income countries is overlooked an awful lot of the time. There are uh, EU interests, for example, in fisheries around Africa, and many other countries have interests in those fisheries too. There are companies from the Western world who want to go and drill for oil and gas, off the coast of Africa. There are mining companies that are moving into Mozambique. I heard about one just before I, I left to come back to Ireland and just outside the border of a protected area, which is just to the south of the park that I work in. They want to start a mining project right on the coast in a dune area, which is absolutely pristine, which will invariably have a very negative effect on, on the dune area and all of the wildlife there, but also is likely have, to have an extremely bad effect on, on the coastline and the water right off of that coastline, which then in turn impacts the, the fishermen and fisherwomen who work there. So all of these kinds of issues are um, what the term blue justice encompasses. It's about looking at the way that we research and understand and manage um, ocean spaces and coastal spaces, but taking the rights of people often people that are, are usually overlooked into all of that management and planning process. And I think that's hugely important because sometimes people think of human rights and conservation as two very different things when in fact they're intimately linked. And if you want to protect species and environments effectively in low-income countries, well, anywhere really, you can't 
bypass the rights of the people that live in those areas or alongside those species. Because first of all, that's not just. But secondly, because as we mentioned earlier, a lot of these countries don't have the resources themselves to really implement things like management programs or conservation programs. I believe that you do that by getting local communities involved, by helping them to realize that um, conservation is good for them as well as good for the environment. And, and a lot of communities realize this already. They know that their survival is intimately linked to the well-being of the environment that they live in. Fishing communities know that they're incredibly reliant on, on fish resources and that if those fish resources are destroyed, perhaps through um, oil and gas exploration and the seismic surveys that, that are involved, then they'll be left with nothing. So if you can get those communities involved, help them to understand that their survival is intimately linked to the well-being of, the, of those environments, then they will become stewards for those environments. And you've got your, your conservation champions right there. To me, that's blue justice. It's about giving people the power that they already should have. And I mean, a lot of these, those mining projects and everything that you were talking about there, like that's Western society, like that's us coming in and exploiting them and... I mean, whatever people might say about the local governments, why don't they just say no? I mean, like if you're being offered so much money and your your communities are are poor, typically, you know, you're you're gonna take this kind of money. So it's kind of up to our governments to not do that. So those of us who are educated on climate change and have the ability to protest, I mean, I imagine that's one thing that we can do to help this. Like if we know our governments if whether you're in America or Ireland or UK or wherever, if you know your governments are, are involved with this, letting them know that it's not okay. Because a lot of people like to know that they can do something. And I imagine that's one thing I imagine that is in our power to do to help these communities which are so far away from us. Is there anything else that we could do? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a really important question, but it's and it's one that I still struggle to answer because there does often seem to be such a disconnect between what needs to be done in low-income countries in order to make positive change and what we can do in, in Europe or in Western countries. Um, absolutely what you said about, about protest is, is right and whether that's protest against climate breakdown, which I think needs to be at the top of our list, then definitely that. The more aware that people can be about things like oil and gas exploration and mining and the involvement of companies from their own country in exploiting um, resources and therefore communities and ecosystems in other places, the better. But that's easy for me to say. It's actually something that's very hard to be aware of and to keep on top of unless you've got a contact in a country that just happens to say, hey, this, this mining company has proposed doing some work here. I would say that beyond protest and encouraging our governments to do the right thing around climate breakdown and just more broadly, really, around things like where our food comes from, you know, EU policies, things like that. We do, I do believe that there's a role for each of us to play individually as well. I mean, I, I like to think that many of us have moved on from the sort of conscious consumerism or, you know, like I'm going to do my bit to understanding that we do have to make effect change at a much wider scale. And that involves peaceful protest 
and being in touch with our governments as much as we can. Um, but I do think understanding that every decision we make about the food that we eat, the things that we buy, the clothes that we wear, that all of that is impacting someone somewhere. That can also make an effect. And it's so hard and it is a lot of work, but that's the world that we live in, unfortunately. Yeah, but it is possible to change. I mean, we've seen with this pandemic how quickly we can adapt when there is a crisis, but climate change isn't getting the same response because it's much more slowly kind of creeping up in a way and it's impacting these the coastal communities in Africa that you're talking about. But it's not us, so it's not our problem yet kind of thing. So... Exactly. And as as people that have a healthcare system, I mean, even the the least wealthy of us are still kind of innately more wealthy than the vast majority of people living on the African continent because we have had an education and we've we've been born into a privilege that most people don't get on that continent. And just acknowledging that, I think, is really important. And then understanding that we have a responsibility to the people who are more vulnerable, that that our actions um, and the lives that we live, even if we didn't choose to be, you know, we didn't choose for that inequality to be there, um, it is there. And therefore we have a responsibility to try and redress that in any way that we can. Definitely. Now, before we move towards closing off this interview, I know you are a fellow vegan like myself. Over 20 years, I bow down. I am not worthy. (laughs) Um, I know that a couple of listeners to this podcast are also vegan. And I wanted to ask, first of all, like what inspired you to go vegan yourself? But secondly, you're working with people a lot of the time in communities who need to catch fish for themselves so how do you deal with that personally because you know they're coming from a totally different background you know and it's one of the kind of straw man arguments that people use against me a lot anyways like what about people in the Himalayas you know and how do you feel about that what's your kind of vegan approach I guess and advice uh right well so for the first question I grew up in the 80s And there was a lot of stuff, especially when I was in the UK, um, I can remember just being, you know, on a street in town and there being little stands on the town with people giving out flowers about animal animal rights and testing on animals, which was a big thing back then. And I, I often wonder actually why it's not now, because it does still happen and it's horrendous and it makes me really sad. But I think I must have seen one of those flyers as a kid and that along with the fact that I just was kind of obsessed with animals made me then want to find out more about it and I I realized pretty early on that I wanted to be a vegetarian. My mum my was having none of it and said I'm not cooking two meals for this family you, you can wait until you're cooking for yourself so um, then when I was sort of you know a year or so into college um, I basically was, was able to become a vegetarian and then I moved to Australia when I was 22 and Australia has been way ahead of Europe and and like other western countries in terms of I I suppose because of the Asian influence and because there are always there have always been a lot of um, Asian foods available in, in Australia for a lot longer and so when I moved to Australia I just started meeting all these people who were vegan and before that I'd never I'd always sort of thought I should do that. I know I should do it because the dairy industry is horrible, but I can't give up cheese. Isn't that always the thing? You know, everyone goes, I can't give up cheese. I was the exact Um, same. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know so many people are like, yeah, I could do everything else, but not the cheese. But then, yeah, I just started meeting people who were vegan and I encountered 
the kind of health food shops that we have now that didn't exist in Ireland back in, you know, 98, 99. And it just became really easy for me to, to do that. So I became vegan while I was living over there. Then I moved to Japan for a while and it's also pretty easy there because there's so much in terms of soy products there. And then, yeah, I moved back to Ireland in 2001 to start my PhD and, and had, had the piss taken out of me for quite a few years for being something that most people had never even heard of at that stage. So it was definitely challenging for a few years. It's kind of amazing to see how how widespread and how acceptable and almost trendy it's become now to be vegan. And it's it's really gratifying in a way to see that happen. But I sometimes want to shake my fist at people and say, you don't know what it was like back in, <laughs> in the early 2000s. Um, I used to like go on a mission to uh, the only whole food shop in Dublin at the time, which was down at the end of Wicklow Street. Um, down to earth? Down to earth, exactly, yeah. yeah. You know, that was like the best stocked and one of the only really decent whole food shops back then. And I used to kind of go on a mission there once a month and spend my savings on whatever bits and pieces I could. Amazing. So yeah, down to earth definitely saved my life. And then to your second question, I'll probably be receiving lots of hate mail from vegans after this. To me, I think there are different types of vegan. And I think we should all be accepting of everyone in whatever stage of the journey they happen to be on in whatever way works well for them. So a few years into becoming vegan, as I started working in Africa, I realized that basically I wasn't going to be able to be a vegan. I've worked in really remote areas in some of the parts of, of East Africa where there, you know there are no roads going to these communities. Sometimes people have really sandy soil and they can't grow any vegetables. And so the basic diet of people in a lot of these areas is fish and rice. So if you don't eat fish and you're working in these areas for three months, you're only going to be eating rice, which means you're going to very quickly become malnourished. So uh, there were a few years when I wasn't able to self-cater where I was eating fish when I was working. Because I'm, and I made that decision consciously. I decided that I really wanted to do this work. It was important to me. Um, and I was hoping that it had a, a broader kind of importance in terms of conservation. And I knew that I couldn't do the work well and look after myself and be healthy if I was hungry and if I was just eating rice. Also culturally, if you want to connect with people and stay with people, it's easier if you're, um, if you're on the same level as them as much as you can be. And that's never going to, you're never going to be on the same level as a white privileged person, you know, with a community of small scale fishers in Africa, but you can at least make an effort. So for me, it was really important on a number of levels to eat fish. And so I've done that when I had to for about four or five years over short periods while I was working in Mozambique and Madagascar, especially. And in terms of um, how I feel about that, it makes me sad every time I see a fish killed. To me, you know, one of the things that I love doing the most is free diving or scuba diving and, and being underwater and seeing all the life underwater. So to see a fish being killed is really sad for me. But I've also met some amazing people in these communities, people who are incredibly generous um, with their time, with their food, with their homes. I mean, it's very easy for us uh, in the Western world to be vegan because we have those options, options that weren't necessarily there in Ireland 20 years ago, but they are now. And options that are in, you know, in, in most other places in, in Europe, at least. Um, those options are not there in Africa. 
people really don't have and not everywhere i mean in in the cities and in some agricultural areas people have beans they have veggies um there's a much more diverse diet but especially with the communities that i work with um the diet is very simple and there often really isn't any option but to eat fish um in order for people to be healthy and so you know people have evolved in coastal environments by using the marine resources as a source of food and um that's not going to change so i i i feel like you have to be at peace with that um the the thing that i feel i can do is to ensure that those marine resources are used in a really responsible and sustainable way that there isn't waste that they aren't overfished and that people understand the importance of of balance in the marine ecosystem of not taking too much um and of not over exploiting any one species yeah i can totally see where you're coming from a lot of people say a vegan world isn't realistic all this kind of thing but i think most vegans kind of are of the opinion that it's if you have the choice to go vegan why wouldn't you but there are some there are some people who don't have that choice like you said and to me in my eyes they're not the problem because they're usually killing the animals themselves as well they know the energy that goes into it whereas the majority of people who aren't eating vegan and my friends and my family they, they actually wouldn't even be able to kill an animal but they would pay someone else to do it for them and even though they have this choice so i i totally <laughs> i'd be i hope you don't get any vegan hate because i can see <laughs> i can see where you're coming from thank you for sharing that do yeah, no you do you know if people are buying fish if they do decide to eat fish in our side do you know how they're able to tell if it's sustainable this is a really important question and i'm glad that you asked that various different countries have have lists for sustainable seafood um, and i think ireland has one as well um, i know the uk definitely has one that's produced by the marine conservation society and that's likely to really be applicable to ireland as well what i would say is that there are certain species that should just be avoided at all costs farmed fish generally are no good for the environment for a number of reasons. Even if they're farmed locally, farmed fish are usually, it's it's a very intensive process. There's a lot of antibiotics and drugs involved in keeping those fish healthy and all of those substances go into the water. So I would advise people to stay away from farmed salmon and things like that. Then I was working in a health food store a few years ago. It was mostly a kind of a vegan vegetarian store and then they decided to stock this brand of responsible fish. And I remember kind of picking up a can and looking at the side of the packaging and it said responsibly fished in West Africa. which I just found kind of outrageous. And my personal belief is, you know, we all know so much more now about shopping local and eating local. And so why should your fish be any different? You know, the reason that we have to import fish from other countries is because we've overfished our own waters. So if you can't get the seafood that you want 
from Irish or, you know, or from kind of local waters. Maybe you just need to do without it, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that should generally apply to our, our food in general. Yeah, there's, you know, there are a lot of fisheries that sell themselves as um, sustainable and responsible and that are happening in low income countries and that market to um, to consumers in the Western world, you know, and, and they will they will sell themselves as, you know, you're supporting the communities in these countries. But the bottom line is that the vast majority of fish stocks on our planet are overfished. And the people living in those countries need that fish to survive more often than not. I've seen this time and time again on the African continent where people are telling me that they have to go further and further out to sea now to catch enough fish, whereas they used to be able to cast a net off the beach. So I don't believe that we in Ireland or anywhere else have a right to fish at the cost of denying someone in the Gambia or Senegal or Mozambique the, their, their sole source of food. Um, so I would say just look very carefully at where your fish are coming from and try to stick to responsible fisheries from, from our waters, the kinds of local fish species that, that are still considered to be doing okay stock-wise here. Um, and never, ever, ever eat anything from a troll fishery because troll fisheries are just so destructive. Yeah. Are, are you able to tell if it's troll or it will just probably have well, nothing sustainable on the packaging? Yeah, I don't know because I don't look at fish packaging. Sure. <laughs> so, um, so I don't really know, but I do know that you just don't eat prawns because prawns are always trolled and okay. scallops generally, unless they're dived scallops, troll fishing is the most destructive apart from dynamite fishing um it's the most destructive form of fishing there is out there it basically decimates the entire seabed and doesn't allow anything to to grow back and live there um usually it's bottom fish you know flatfish and things like that and prawns just don't do that okay yeah there's some horrific footage out there of a camera being attached to a trawl and like you can literally see everything and i've got this image burned into my mind of this octopus that it catches and is like clinging onto the side and it's just they literally just take everything everything and And they're responsible for a lot of bycatch of um sharks and rays as well you know which i think a lot of people that that's my field of research and a lot of people are becoming more aware of how important and how really cool and and interesting sharks and rays are and also how endangered so many of those species of sharks and rays are so again you know just another reason to say no just because you brought this up there and i hadn't heard of this before dynamite fishing i presume is what it is on the tin i mean is that something that western countries do no dynamite fishing is generally used um it was used really widely in asia and also in parts of east africa like tanzania up until quite recently it's mostly been banned now and it's just happening in a few pockets kind of illegally uh but it, it tends to not be for for markets that are going up because you know the fish get pretty badly damaged so it it tends to be used by really desperate fishers when their fish populations have already been fished down quite low and they're Mm. finding it so hard to to find those last few fish that they'll just bomb them out of the water basically but obviously that wouldn't be happening if the stocks weren't so low in the first place well exactly yeah yeah um, now I keep saying this is the last thing absolute last thing we won't spend too much long in this because uh, I've got other I have other podcasts about plastic but because you spent so much time underwater and you've been scuba diving in a lot of parts of the world have you seen yourself 
plastic in the oceans and do you see it in Mozambique? Um, I've seen some really, really horrendous levels of beach plastic in Mozambique. And also two years ago, I worked in Ghana for a very short stint. And I've never seen beaches before that were just layers of, of about 20 centimetres thick of waste. There, there wasn't actually any sand visible there was just the, the waves kind of lapping up on these huge thick um, wedges of, of compounded plastic it was horrible in Mozambique where we are there's a current that comes down the East African coast from from the north down towards the islands um, where I work and those currents bring a lot of trash with them, especially when there are heavy storms and big swells. You can end up with just huge piles of, of ocean plastic on the beaches on some of these islands, which are otherwise pristine. You know, they're really well looked after. There's a couple of brilliant NGOs in Mozambique that do a lot of beach clean work with local communities, with school groups and within the national park as well. We do our own beach cleans. But I think it's just something, it's a challenge we're going to, keep facing for years and years to come because there's so much trash out there yeah already and it's still being made every day I think the scariest one for me was actually I was working in Indonesia a few years ago um, I had a day off at the end of the of the period of work before I was due to um, head out and my colleague there said oh well, let's go to a beach and so we went to this lovely beach I said I'm going to go for a swim and I got in and the water was crystal clear it was beautiful I swam out about 100 meters and started seeing this coral everywhere everywhere and it was some of the most beautiful like really colorful properly um coral triangle type stuff you know like David Attenborough type um, footage yeah and there were all the fish over the coral and it was just gorgeous and then I kind of looked up a bit and I just started seeing all of these plastic bags and plastic cups and plastic sachets and I've never seen it was like a wall of fl plastic floating in in the middle of the water column I couldn't actually believe it because I'd seen plastic on beaches and I'd seen, you know, sort of like bits and pieces of plastic coming up in the waves. But I'd never seen that volume of plastic actually in a, an open water environment before. And all the fish were kind of swimming in and out of it. And I just, I had visions of, you know, some kind of filter feeder, like a, like a manta ray or something coming along with its mouth open and just swallowing all of this stuff. And it was, yeah, I had a physical reaction to it. Um, it was absolutely heart-wrenching you know and and it, and it was all the more kind of shocking because it was over this completely gorgeous vibrant ecosystem that was otherwise incredibly healthy and surprisingly full of life you know because Indonesian waters have their own challenges around overfishing but this area had obviously been well protected yeah it's terrifying it's yeah. a really really terrifying thing it's just another thing added in with climate change and overfishing and this plastic like so it can be really overwhelming but I'm going to ask you to send on some links to those charities that you were talking about and I'll link those in the show notes the, the beach cleanups and guys and everything so hopefully 
people can support those because that's one way, but also tackling our own waste. And I've got an episode or two on plastic that I will link in the show notes as well that people can listen to to see how we can get policy change and system change in regards to plastic as well because it absolutely needs to happen. Oh, um, Ruth, <laughs> thank you so much. Unless there's anything else you want to cover or shout out, I think we covered so much there. I'll we let- did. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm sorry for being the voice of doom. I'm no, not at all. I think, no, <laughs> it has to. We need to know these things for sure. We need to know these things so we can learn and talk to each other about them because you need to be shocked by something sometimes to kind of be kicked into to gear to, to fight against it or fight for it so I think we do need to know this and we need to have chats with our families and friends and protest as well and I just want to say thank you as well for giving me the opportunity to chat to you because you know I think sometimes people in Ireland and and in Europe feel like they're so far away from these issues that are happening and it say on the African continent or in other low-income countries and that we sort of have to look after our own affairs at home but I genuinely do believe that we're all we're all connected not just in a hippie way but actually in the ways that you've mentioned you know that by by protesting and by talking to our governments about things like EU fisheries policy and of course about climate breakdown we do have the power to to change things for the better not just for ourselves but actually for for people in other countries too and you know Ireland as a country has a big impact through NGOs that work on the African continent and so by Irish society saying look we care about these issues we care about the climate crisis and we care about populations in other places hopefully that can only sort of reinforce the work that's being done, the amazing work that's being done in other places, you know, whether it's led or assisted by an Irish NGO or as it is in a lot of cases led by the communities themselves. Definitely. Yeah, you mentioned Vita before the start of this episode. They're one of the charities kind of doing that like in Yeah, they think like they're doing amazing work. Yeah. And um, I mean, there's a, there's an Irish consulate in Mozambique as well, and they do a lot of uh, work around sustainable agriculture in Mozambique and um, really looking out for food security for people there as well you know so there there is a lot of really fantastic work being done there and let's do more of it amazing thank you so so much Ruth my pleasure Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. We covered so, so much and there's so much we didn't even get to. I didn't even get to ask her about the sawfish population that she's working so hard to protect. And Ruth is also a member of Women for Oceans, which is a network of women who are involved with marine conservation all over the world and basically has been doing a lot of her work through them. And you can support Ruth's work and the amazing work of that NGO on their website, Women for Oceans. I've linked a donate link in the show notes here. And if it's not working on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, you can check that out on bookoflyspodcast.com. And she has also sent me a link to Parco, which is a beach cleanup charity in 
Mozambique. They have got an Instagram and she is working on a book with Women for Oceans at the moment, which I will definitely keep you guys posted about. And I've linked her project for sawfishes as well. So she's just one of those people that is a well of information. And I think those firsthand experiences and discussions she's had with people on the front lines is invaluable. So I hope you guys got something out of this and we must try remember that the choices that we make here affect everywhere. There's a chain reaction all the time. So I hope you can take a leaf or two from this episode in regards to fishing and being more aware when consuming and our plastic use as well, of course. So I think that is it. Again, if you could support this podcast on Patreon or buymeacoffee.com, please, please do. Just just search Book of Leaves. And if you're on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please do give this a review and rate it if you can, because that really helps getting the word out. And as always, like, subscribe, all the kind of stuff and recommend it to a friend. I hope you guys had a not so challenging Plastic Free July if you were trying that out. And as always, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Book of Lee's Pod and Instagram, Book of Lee's Podcast to find out more and keep up to date on future episodes and any shenanigans I'm getting up to. And I think that is it. I hope you're all having a wonderful day. Mind yourselves, wash your hands, wear a mask and I will talk to you in two weeks time. Take care.